Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. With me today is Javier Puente. Javier is an assistant professor and chair of Latin American and Latino-Latino Studies at Smith College. He is here to talk with me today about his new book, The Rural State, Making Comunidades, Campesinos, and Conflict in Peru's Central Sierra. Welcome to the program, Javier. Hi, Elena. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with all the listeners of New Books Network. Uh, Let's have a conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy, but also very shy. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. So let's start basics with um, how did you come to write this particular book? Um, I, th- I think as I have always claimed, and I would, I would never, you know, folks from grad school, like friends would never let me lie about this. I know other authors and scholars have these like really very schematic, well-structured narrative of how they found the topic and, you know, like envision it and, you know, conceive it carefully. In my case, I think the topic found me. I think it was the other way around. I I, I was just in the right place at the right time. And um, it was... It was contingency. As I said on the introduction of the book or the on the acknowledgments, I think contingency also drives history. And um, I think I was returning to Peru after my first full year in grad school. And I was a very, very desperate grad student trying to find a dissertation topic because, you know, there were like internal grants um, and uh, fellowship deadlines coming up and, you know, you just need the money to be able to conduct your your, your research, but also to, you know, get the curriculum thicker so you can, like, continue to land other opportunities. And um, I think as many folks of my generation interested in, like, 20th century Peruvian topics, I, I wanted to research something related to political violence. Right? I, I wanted to be like a, a part of the new generation of senderologos, of uh, you know, people who studied Sendero Luminoso and, and Ayacucho, perhaps, and just um, just to study you know, the, the countryside, which I, I, I guess the countryside, I did always see it as that focal area of, of interest due to intellectual but also personal reasons. And we can talk about that more if you wish. Um, so um, I traveled to Ayacucho. Um, I, I interviewed some folks. I uh, went to the archives briefly. And at that point, you know, maybe this was probably more on me than on the archives or on the sources. 
I found nothing different. I, I found like everything that I was finding was either being researched at the moment or had been researched and published. And and then there is this strife that grad students always feel of like, you have to come up with something completely new, right? Um, so I returned to Lima after two weeks in Ayacucho, sort of disappointed. I mean, happy that I had been in Ayacucho. It was an, it was an interesting travel. It was nice in many ways. It was, it was what Ayacucho is, right? It's, it's a place of both wonder and sorrow in equal parts. And that felt like very nourishing on, on many levels. And I returned to Lima and went back to um, the Biblioteca of the Pontificia Universidad Católica del Perú, which was my undergrad institution. And and there I accidentally, completely by accident, found these um, files with documents from this. Um, it was the fourth Russell Tribunal on Indigenous Rights. Um, um, I, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the details about what the Russell Tribunal is, but this is an international kind of symbolic court that addresses global issues that 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 feel pertinent at a given moment in history. And this this is a tribunal that was meeting in 1983, I think, or 84. So we're talking about like very early years, uh, midst of the militarization of the internal armed conflict in Peru, and among these files, among these records, there was a grievance filed by San Juan de Hondores. This campesino community, not from Ayacucho, but from Junín, who was, um, you know, in lieu of a better description, Sioux in the Peruvian state. So that called my attention powerfully. It was like, you know, we're in the midst of a major conflagration that is escalating militarily and acquiring civil war characteristics with campesinos and indigenous communities at the very center, and this one community is suing the state. So that's what I gathered from my first summer of research. I went back to Georgia and I started to write some things around these documents. And then when I returned from my research year, um, I just, you know, had another accident. I, I was researching in the uh, Archivo General de la Nación. Uh, there I... I um, overheard this conversation between uh, a campesino from Patti and uh, and the archivist. Um, he was trying to find the titles of his community and, and was tr- being treated with disdain by this archivist. Uh, so I approached him because I, I overheard a community that I knew was neighboring from Honduras. And I talked to him and explained what I was doing and shared some files with him. And, and he was like completely baffled about why or how come I knew so much about this region? Like, who are you? Yeah, who who are you from there? And then he asked me that question that I wish every historian would get um, asked at some point in, early in their processes of research. He said, have you been to Honduras? Right. And, and embarrassingly enough, my response was no. And, and, you know, so many things hit you at once, like, you are researching the history of people who are still alive, who still exist, who are still in the same place and, you know, struggling and thriving, uh, but just like having everyday lives, you know, and their lives are historical, but they're also very present. And so he said, the obvious, you have to come. So he gave me the phone number of the president of the Comunidad uh, San Juan de Hondores and explained to me that there was a, an Erranza Junina, this like big racing uh, festival uh, happening on that Sunday. I called the president and he said, of course, come up. Uh, I, I went up to Honduras. I, I met with the Presidente Comunal at the time, Obed Laureano, um, met with the entire Junta Directiva, sort of the communal leaders, explained what I was doing. 
Um, then, you know, they said, like, let's, let's not discuss this further. Let's go to the Ranza. So we went to the, the party. We, we got tipsy uh, with uh, not very cold beer, <laughs> as it's uh, usual in, in, in the Peruvian Andes. Um, and, and the following morning, uh, you know, with a fair degree of Hanover, we had a conversation about historical research. And, uh, and then the, they mentioned these um, documents that they have, the, the, their own archives, which I had heard of. I had seen it like expressions, mentions of these um, communal minutes on state sources. Uh, but I had no idea they existed. I mean, in my mind, these kind of documents were either washed away by history or obliterated by the state or perhaps confiscated by Sandro Luminoso at some point in most of the Andes. So I had no idea that, that some comunidades still held these communal minutes. Um, I saw them. I, as, as an anxious historian, I literally rushed to, you know, like get a hold of them. And they said, no, 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 not yet. You have to ask for permission from the comunidad first. I had to present my project to the comunidad. They had to hold a vote. They voted. It was not a unanimous vote, which was very telling and very revealing to me of, about many things of um, communal politics. But ultimately, I was granted access. And, and then... All of a sudden, I had a dissertation. I, I knew I had a dissertation. I sort of knew I had a book. Um, and, and I think I, I had a career at, at that point. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. That, I mean, it's, it's an incredible story. Um, but also, um, actually, it's an entirely credible story if you're going to be working with a rural community. Um, but can you explain to our listeners what the communal minutes were and why this is such an an incredible source, and then how maybe it, it intersects or doesn't with other kinds of archives. I would love to, yeah. Um, so um, for explaining what the communal minutes are, the actas comunales, as, as they're called, I think it's important to mention um, like what comunidades in, the 20, in Peru's 20th century are. Right? <laughs> and um, the very identity and um, you know sort of like social political existence and to some degree the, the like foundational legibility of comunidades in the 20th century, um, they all emerge from this piece of legislation that was passed in 1920, which is the recognition of the personalidad uh, jurídica de las comunidades indígenas, right? The sort of like legal status of of indigenous communities. Um, that, um, you know, we'll get to talk about this later in the conversation, but, you know, it, it was the Peruvian state's attempt to sort of remanufacture a, a human geography of the Andes that could facilitate some form of governance of the countryside, which up to that point remained largely, you know, not only unruly, but like obscure to, to the state's eyes, so to speak. And, and so the Peruvian legislation advanced this um, idea of comunidad, and um, um, it was, you know, in lieu of a better analogy, it was a contract, right? So I'm, I, I'm offering you the possibility of becoming this, right? And these are the terms that you need to fulfill in order to be granted the legal status that I'm offering. So there were a number of requirements, all of them related to basically um, uh, facilitating state governance inside these like emerging polities that will be known as comunidades. And one of these requirements was, um, 
in order for a community to retain um, its legal status, um, they have to hold a communal assembly with all comuneros and comuneras, all the legally recognized community members, um, every Sunday. Uh, and upon holding this meeting, they had to write down a report of what the conversation was. What was the conversation? What was the nature of the conversation? What were the topics that were discussed? What was the different positions that were being presented? And if there was any resolution, of course. Um, this is a requirement that had been in place and continues to be in place um, as a practice more so than a requirement these days, but um, since since 1921, right? Um, and so these actas comunales, these communal minutes really provide a very, very intimate, and not unbiased, but intimate window into the very, very core of communal politics since the you know dawn of the 20th century, really, right? Um, and um, it's it is a historical document. It's um, a, its own form of archive, and you know that I think makes these documents and their archives in which they exist subject to the same analysis that other scholars have conducted for. Um, other forms of archives, right? They're, they are institutions of power, mechanisms of power. They they tell some stuff, but they also silence some other stuff, some some other issues, some other questions. But um, I think all in all, they really provide a almost, I would say, alternative narrative of communal formation to that that is present in, in state sources. Um by the same token, I think it's fair to say that these communal minutes are also a device of uh, of governance, right? I mean, I, there were there were documents that were meant to exist also for state bureaucrats, state representatives, and and other authorities to, you know, perhaps. And this was not um, um, completely extraordinary; quite, quite the opposite. It was it was a frequent. Um, event to have a, 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 a representative of the Oficina de Asuntos Indígenas, the Office of Indigenous Affairs, visiting a community and checking the actas, right? Checking the minutes, reading them. They were, they were meant to be of public access for state representatives. And I think in that way, it signaled this sort of like documental domain for the state to constantly surveil communal politics in in like a kind of soft way, uh, so to speak. So they are devices of governmentality, but they're also records of how hundreds of thousands of people experience communal formation, state formation, and everyday life in the Peruvian countryside for at least a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So let's. Um... Let's talk a little bit about the story that you were able to tell from those records, right? Um, and I want to go back a little bit because your book, your book really starts in the aftermath of the War of the Pacific. You've you've got at least a hundred years of history in this community that you're that you're pulling together here. So, what were some of the things that um, that were going on in the countryside that a made the state want to exercise? Um, governance in the countryside in this way by 1920, which is unusual in and of itself, or is a story in and of itself. And then 
made communities like Honduras decide that this was a contract they wanted to enter into? I think there is a lot going on in the countryside, and, and I think that's um, that's something that I wanted to, um, with the recommendation of, of my editors, of course, and many, many journalist colleagues, I wanted to convey this in the very title of the book, right? The rural state, the idea that the Peruvian state has a rural backbone, a rural spine, that, that really this is where what you can call a state in the 20th century first emerged, right? And um, that sort of rural origin of of the Peruvian state there is there is this wino song that I I, I I almost wanted to cite on the book El Peru Nacio Serrano right the the the, the Peru the Peru as a nation was born uh, a Highlander and like from the Sierra right and um you know while while nationalistic I think there is something truth to that statement I I think maybe El Peru no Nacio Serrano but I think El Peru Nació Comunal, right? And, um, and um, you know, Alberto Flores Galindo had once said that um, um, the comunidad is the most important institution in the history of the Republic. So these were ideas that, you know, serve, serve me to frame what, what I'm going to say next. I think we tend to forget that before 1940, in Peru and probably in the rest of the world, most of the population were rural. Like most of the world was was really rural, right? What we know nowadays as this sort of like massive urbanization of the planet, of Latin America, all of the world, these like heavy urban densities that, among other things, have been so functional for the spread of uh, COVID nineteen. That's that's sort of like a post nineteen forty development. Um, I think before 1940, um, most of the Peruvian population lived in the countryside. And I think most of the Peruvian population lived in um, under some form of communal livelihood. Um, I, I think while 1920s is departure point for the state legibility of communal formations, Communal livelihoods precede 1920s. Um, I mean, it has been argued that um, that um, you know, comunidades, indigenous communities, campesino communities, they are like linked with this sort of ancestral, immemorial um, IU period, right? Like they are inheritors of the of the pre-Columbian IUs, their their Inca heritage, you know. To what extent that's true or not, I'll, I'll leave other other specialists uh, of these topics to to discuss and assert and affirm. But I, I can confidently say that um, yes, I think there is a communal form of livelihood that precedes the story that I'm telling here. Um, so that's the first thing that that's happening in the countryside. There is a great degree of population concentration. Most most of the people of the country live there, right? And when you think about people, the state, what is thinking is, you know economically active people, right? Uh, Población economicamente activa. Like, is, can these people be transformed into labor and to a labor that can fuel what we need as a state, what we need material as a state, what we need perhaps legally as a state too. But how can we do that if the governance that this like first hundred years of Republican life uh, wrap up by the collapse of the war of the Pacific has left a state in ruins, right? Has left a, a, a nation in 
almost complete devastation, like no sense of like national cohesion and the state from material viewpoint sort of devastated, right? So how can we really like enforce a governance that transcend the limits of Lima and other provincial capitals of the country? How can we expand the state into this sort of like obscure, dark region known as the countryside, El Campo? I think I, I used the term uh, at some point in the book of a cadastral anxiety, right? This anxiety that that the, the state develops for for seeing the countryside, measuring it, creating a metric of of the countryside, mapping it, counting it, uh, sensing it. Uh, th- there is nothing. There is no mechanisms for for doing that. Um, nothing of that nature exists, um, and. Nevertheless, I think there is this perception that is going to first be brought up by foreign travelers and then eventually domestic travelers and other um, like policymakers who are going to report about these extraordinary conditions that the countryside has for capitalist ventures, for capitalist exploitation, right? And um, I think that's what the first chapter of the book does, right? This sort of moment in... Uh, the very, very early 20th century, a, a country that is going through a reconstruction legally, institutionally, but also economically. And it is reappreciating the countryside as this space that, space that perhaps holds the key for reconstructions to be economically, materially, materially feasible. Um, and... I think one of the the, the interesting um, things that I trace on on, on this chapter is um, that in the first presentations of this new capitalist appraisal of the countryside, there is no room for people, right? There is no room for for a human presence, a, the, the human element, so to speak, right? It, it's very much aligned with. Uh, what um, the great influential scholar Marie Louis Pratt, Pratt said about um, imperial eyes, right? So how how the eyes of empire really erase human presence for the sake of presenting this sort of pristine nature that is almost completely and unquestionably available uh, to to logics of capital and capitalist exploitation, and that's. I think to some degree what happens in some of the earliest reappraisals of uh, uh, of the countryside. I think gradually what this Peruvian estate realizes when these documents start to merge and uh, there is, uh, you know, an imaginary of of the countryside uh, under under these capitalist eyes uh, is fine. We have mines, we have grazing pastures, we have water resources. Who's going to work there? <laughs> Right? I, I don't want to, right? Dante Norriso Patron doesn't want to work the land there. Right? Uh, and um, one of the first epiphanies that the Peruvian state has is observing uh, initiatives such, such as the um, last manifestations of British imperialism in the Central Sierra, uh, particularly the presence of this um, uh, wool corporation, um, the Duncan, Duncan Fox and Company, uh, that uh, had been venturing since the late 19th century into the business of um, capitalized, highly industrialized wool production with the combination of what you could consider at the moment modern husbandry 
uh, sophisticated veterinarian knowledge, but really, really key to this, indigenous labor. Right? So the Bolivian state realizes that some of the most successful experience of capitalist ventures before 1920 are merging together the ambition of the state with the efficient and effective mobilization of local populations absorbed by these schemes of capitalist exploitation. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is nothing new. This is like what colonial this capitalism is did. <laughs> this is the Mita, exactly. This is the Mita. It's going to be the enganche later on. Mm-hmm. Right? It's going to be this sort of like uh, what's going to happen elsewhere in other stories of indigenismo and uh, that I also recount to some degree in, in chapter two of... Uh, this quest for integrating the indigenous um, inhabitant, lo indígena, right, el, el personaje indígena, into the nation, right, and that integration meaning, please become the laborer and the person who is going to like build this from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So, and also then, next time we go to war with Chile, please fight more. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Uh, or and any time we go to a war, whether it's external or internal. You know, you have to wield the arms, right? You have to wield the weapons and 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 save us for, for whatever the, the elites get us into. Um, so, um, yeah, I think um, to go back to your original question, Elena, there's population density. There is a promise of some form of pristine nature that can be transformed into natural resources and, and therefore contribute to the economic revival of the country as a whole. Um, but I also think there is just something about, you know, consolidating the very territoriality of the Peruvian state, right? sort of just creating a sense of territorial affirmation that transcends, you know, delineating its external borders, but also goes into, you know, let's enforce territorial regimes here. Let's enforce private property. Let's, let's you know, create a system that can allow us to make sense from this state viewpoint of what the countryside is in territorial ways. Um, and and there, I think, the, this um, 20th century ideal of comunidad came to be really, really a, a key factor for, for um, manufacturing a, a very, very well-merged um, image of the countryside as both a physical space and a human geography. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that um, that was a very masterful overview of of the state's interest in this matter. Let's talk now about um, Honduras and the community and how they were navigating the early decades of the 20th century. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, you know, there is, we have to embrace this, uh, uh, you know, for, for the former president of the American Historical Association, these very um, questionable practices of presentism in order to answer this. Uh-huh. Um, and um, I think there is nothing wrong with presentism, by the way. Uh, you know, there, this is <laughs> it, the it only always way. informs our questions. It does That's inform always our how questions. We get- Exactly, exactly, Elena. Um, I think um, when we talk about, you know, like communal participation in state making, the relationship between a state and comunidades, particularly from a contemporary viewpoint, um, 
we are just tempted to depart from the premise that what we see with this like very evident, very tangible fracture and distance that we see between the current Peruvian state and comunidades has always been there, there, right? This is, has been a major historical continuity in the history of Peru since times immemorial. And, you know, that's, that's not how it happened. Right, I, I, yeah. you know, there, there is. This is why Flores Galindo's quote about like the comunidad as the most in, important institution of the republic is it's so crucial. I would expand Flores Galindo's affirmation to say that the comunidad is not only the most important institution of the republic. The comunidad is the most important institution for every single power, every single power pre-Columbian, colonial, and modern that has tried to rule the Andes, right? So if you go to books like, you know, Karen Spalding's Masterful Wadochiri, or you go to the books that this new mining history of the Americas that are, you know, like recasting and re-evaluating the Mita Potosina and, and other forms of like indigenous uh, labor tax for the colonial state, you you go beyond Peru and you like you know just to to bring up uh, John Tutino's take on uh, the indigenous participation and the foundation of capitalism in New Mexico. These peoples living in comunidades are the peoples who made this hemisphere since times immemorial, right? And so every single power that has tried to rule nearly any portion of the hemisphere, not just Peru, not just the Andes, probably the entire hemisphere, had to resort on mobilizing communal domains at some point. It's 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 just unavoidable, right? Um and so that mobilization I think, you know, it, we we're also tempted to fall into this um um understanding of such mobilization only happening through coercion. Right? So these powers sooner than later, will unavoidably end up coercing communal domains, coercing comuneros and comuneras and, and, and communal powers for the sake of building up power, right? Um, well, that's not how power works. Right? Any, any power that, uh, that remains too coercive for too long will confront some major challenge at some point, right? Like power requires moral sanction. And power requires like this sort of balance of coercion when needed, but also like careful cooptation right? and persuasion and persuading folks, persuading those subject to these logics of power that is in their convenience and in their interest to join these schemes of, of power. Um, and I think that is the story that I try to narrate, right? The, the idea that at some point, the Peruvian state, informed by both policymakers but also intellectuals who claim, by the way, to defend indigenous interests, put forward this contract, right? This idea that, you know, if you come to us, you'll be granted this legal status. In order for be granted this status, you need to fulfill these sets of requirements. And yes, this set of requirements means that effectively the state is quote-unquote, intruding into your social and political everyday intimacy. But what is to be gained? And this is something that will be present in every, nearly every single minute 
of San Juan de Honduras actas comunales, right? What are we gaining by doing this? And I think the first thing that w became an, a matter of persuasion for comunidades to actively mobilize and pursue legal recognition was recognition itself. Was the idea that being legible to anyone who is in command turns out to be a modern state now, before it was a, the Simononic state, and before that it was a colonial state, and before that it was you know, an Inca state, and before the Inca state it was a Wadi state. These are just the new guys in power, so to speak, right? Having legibility vis-a-vis -vis this like main power holder that is claiming a state authority at that point has as much perils and consequences and like demands as it could have rights and um, some form of foundational legibilities that can, one way or another, empower their own communal ideas of autonomy. Autonomy is a goal, right? What is autonomy? Does it exist outside the structures of the state? No, no, that's not autonomy. That's, that's something else, right? I think autonomy understood as the capacity that this group of people can have to decide what's going to happen tomorrow for the current generation and perhaps the subsequent generation, the children, in ways defined just by themselves, right? That's, that would be like that sort of very, very basic definition of autonomy that I could hold to say, this is, this is the goal. And state legibility, acquiring that state legibility, could facilitate in the minds of people who decided to sign this contract with the state, could facilitate um, that autonomy, could facilitate empowering these visions of autonomy. And in the case of 20th century Peru, the way in which this autonomy was expressed was through the affirmation of their land rights. And this is the moment of the history of Honduras in which the neighboring Hacienda Fato Psycho entered. For this comunidad, um, the key way of affirming their existence, their, their historical existence, their historical existence uh, and their survival into the future was reacquiring, repossessing, reclaiming a neighboring state known as Atoxaico, the Atoxaico Hacienda. And early in the 20th century, the mechanism for achieving that seemed to be abiding to the terms put forward by the state mm -hmm. to become a legally recognized comunidad. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So let's then talk about the Atoxaico Hacienda and what its trajectory was in, in this period, because I think it's easy to sort of assume a set of dynamics, right, about a community versus a powerful landowner and assume that there's, there's one that's gaining power and one that's always on the defensive. But actually, the story you tell about the relationship between San Juan de Andores and Atoxaico is, is a bit different than that. So... It is a bit different. Um, yeah, it's, um, I think, something that um, I didn't include on the book version of this story, but it's included in the dissertation. And, um, you know, my editor and um, the um, uh, peer reviewers, the anonymous peer reviewers, both insisted on me to, insisted on the idea that um, that I should add this, this element of the story. And I ultimately refused for 
for various reasons, was the colonial component of this story. So Atok Saiko is it's it's an it's um it's an ascent, it's a piece of land that um can be documented back to colonial times. It was uh, a land grant made to a Spanish conquistador um in the 18th century, well, not conquistador at that point, like an hacendado in the 18th century, named Pablo Santiago Concha. Uh, and um, Pablo Santiago Concha and um, the um, colonial estate at the time uh, acquired this uh, estate for this like very, very entangled legal mechanism known as a censo enfiteutico. Right? It's um, it's basically like um, I, I think um, a, 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 a perpetual land grant, right? So um, someone grants land to um, an individual, and that someone um, was not the, was not the colonial state. It was um, a neighboring town, neighboring people at the time of the signing of this document. It was a town or a people uh, who defined themselves as a pueblo de criollos, a a town of Creoles, a pueblo de criollos de San Juan de Hondores. I mean, part of the reason why I didn't um, include this is that I I wanted to present this sort of like very comprehensive history of the 20th century in Peru. And I think adding that colonial element could be disoriented for readers. But also part of the reason that I'm evidencing on this conversation is that I didn't fully understand like the, the, the nature of this grant and what it meant. Uh, Emphytosis is something that hasn't been as studied in um, in Peru as it has been, for instance, in Mexico. So when I was writing the dissertation, most of what I gathered about Emphytosis was from uh, Mexican scholarship and, and like New Spain cases of emphytosis. So this all made it um, too entangled for me to um, include it with more of an authoritative voice in the book. But anyway, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a piece of land of colonial origins that goes through different process of selling and reselling under this scheme of the Censo Emphytotico, but that According to the Censo Emphytotico and according to the villagers of Honduras, all this time, since 1742 all the way to 1920, had always belonged to them. This, they granted this piece of land to Pablo Santiago Concha originally. Right? The colonial state only mediated in the land grant, authorized the land grant. But the grant was made by the criollos of Honduras to this individual. And the individual sold the land and someone else sold the land and someone else sold the land through the 19th century all the way to the 1870s and 1880s when the British company Duncan Fox bought this land. And um, the story of this hacienda is a story of how through colonial, through late colonial times, all the way to the 19th century and the very early 20th century, communal existence fell into this atmosphere of legal obliteration. So for folks who don't know much about it, in the 19th century, 19th century liberalism, um, 
disempower comunidades by effectively eliminating communal land holdings, right? And by displacing these communal land holdings, not recognizing communal land holdings, what they literally or what they effectively did, what the Peruvian state effectively did was putting a veil on communal existence and creating in practice a very interesting merge of land and the people who live on the land, right? So by selling and reselling and transferring the property of the Atoxaico Hacienda, uh, 20th century sources of Honduras also recount the story of people, Hondorinos, who live on this hacienda being part of the purchases, right? So like also being subject to these commercial transactions and like passing down this line of land ownership as the labor who was going to work on this hacienda um, by by default, so to speak. Um, I know I have made this answer to entangle, but let me disentangle it now. Um, Atok Psycho emerges in the 20th century as this very, very visible icon of what the combination of industrial values and indigenous labor can deliver under private property at the time, but potentially with the right conditions, something that could be replicated under communal domain with a state surveillance. Um, And in this process of the relationship between Honduras and Atoxaico, they haven't really claimed this sort of like classic, what, what you were asking at the beginning, this sort of classic um, power imbalance in the relate, like, you know, the evil hacendado against the poor indigenous people, powerless indigenous people. Instead, it's a more fluid story of knowing that a toxico always existed next to them, knowing that a toxico was their historical belonging, um, entering Atoxaico sometimes through the presence of their communal flocks, right? Um, using Atoxaico's pastures for the well-being of family or communal flocks and therefore for the well-being of the comunidad as a whole. And always being this sort of horizon, right? This, this sort of like communal horizon of will claim it and will resist it and will repossess it when we're ready. We're not quite ready yet. Right? And so this this language of readiness to take over a toxico, to mobilize over a toxico, to mobilize legally over a toxico, or to mobilize socially over a toxico through a land invasion or a land seizure, was always something that was presented to the comunidad or was discussed in the comunidad as a moment that they had to prepare for. And before that moment were to arrive, they would have a a much more fluid, less sort of like binary relationship with Atoxico and anyone who claimed to own Atoxico. And that story intersects with mid 20th century ideas that were circulating in Peru, but also throughout Latin America and throughout the world about agrarian reform. 
right? And so, so if we swing back to the perspective of the state looking at this, there's the state is trying to reimagine a, a slightly different relationship between land and the people on it and capital and the role of the state itself. And, and you show in, um, in your sort of second section of the book how agrarian bef- reform becomes a dominant discourse about how this can happen, and also that it becomes a kind of shared goal, but not a goal that is identical, right? It's a There's a kind of uneasy alliance you talk about between different actors who all see agrarian reform as a means to perhaps not the same end. Yes. So can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, Nina. Um, I think um, when you evoke the term agrarian reform, particularly in Peru, you unavoidably end up talking about Velasco and the 1969 agrarian reform. And, you know, that has a very, very um, monolithic presence in in how the contemporary conversation about agrarian reform shapes up. Um, And I think what I try to do is showing a longer and larger trajectory of the term and the visions and the projects behind an idea that Yes, it ended up this version of agrarian reform that was land redistribution, right? Or at least the promise of land redistribution. But early on acquired different characteristics and and yes, it it brought together different visions and different um projects of how the future of the countryside could look like. All of them, I think, though, share something. And that something is that the countryside held an unfulfilled promise, right? The country had, the countryside held some form of not fully unveiled potential that in years, by that point, you know, we're talking about 1950s, 1960s, right? Decades of state presence in the countryside, right? That depart from this like legibility that we discussed just a few minutes ago, that continue with other projects of state intervention, like building roads, uh, building schools, uh, capitalizing communities through this um, project of uh, indigenous and later renamed communal farms uh, in the 1940s. It's decades of state interventions and state investments that have actually made communal economies quite prosperous. I mean, that, at least that is the case of San Juan de Honduras, right? It's it's a quite economically thriving community. They're doing fine. They're doing so fine that the comunidades of the Central Sierra are participating very, very actively in the making of a new breed of sheep that is go- it's about to become a very, very important icon of agrarian industrialism in Peru. And, you know, Upon being, it was a very successful project. Upon being successful, it was sold as a token of the triumph of biological, ecological, animal triumph of state agrarian industrialism to other countries. Like Oveja Junin, the Oveja Raza Junin was sold to Scotland and, and Wyoming here in the United States bought a lot of um, Oveja Raza Junin. And, and in the making of projects like these, granjas comunales, new sheep of breed, new breed of sheep, these communities had had a very, very, very important role, very active role, so active and so important that um, 
some conversations at the state level started to perceive haciendas to be detrimental to the interest of continue to advance agrarian industrialism. And in fact, they perceive that the best partners, the state perceived that the best partners for bringing this agrarian industrialism to the next level was the comunidad, not the hacienda, right? So I think all the visions of agrarian reform from capitalizing comunidades to land redistribution really held this same like vision of an, the countryside and, and comunidades as not fully um, exploited, not fully um, um, cached potential, right? Uh, that they, they could deliver more. They could deliver more with the right kind of intervention. Um, I think the game changer in that trajectory of this much more multi-center understanding of Afghan reform is, of course, the hemispheric impact of the Cuban Revolution and the subsequent influence of the Alliance for Progress. And this, I think, gradually emerging monolithic vision that agrarian reform needs to, needs to be land redistribution. But that only happens in the 1960s, past 1961. Right? Before that, there is, a conversation, there is an ongoing conversation about reforming agrarian economies, not necessarily for land redistribution. And in all of these conversations, comunidades like San Juan de Honduras continue to participate actively and receive these projects and discuss them collectively and discuss them communally and leave in traces of these conversations and continue to ask the question, what do we gain? When the 1960s come um, and that particular vision of agrarian reform as land redistribution settles, um, that promise ignites something else. Uh, I would I would say, and that's something else is, yes, there is this crack that has now opened in the structures of power that govern us, that can now seemingly provide an avenue for us to gain the autonomy that we had long ambition, that we had long pursued, that we knew we just had to prepare for, and now it's being presented to us, reclaiming land. And in the case of Honduras, reclaiming a top cycle, right? This is a moment in which a number of communities in the Central Sierra are doing invasiones, are doing land seizures, right? The toma de tierras of the Central Sierra. A toma de tierras, by the way, that, um, you know, in, in, in this new, new moment of campesino mobilization that we're seeing these days in Peru uh, was not confronted with repression in, in all circumstances. Instead, in some circumstances, you know, when, when comunidades mobilize over land and occupy it and seize it and reclaim it, the state often, um, in the form of a bureaucrat, uh, attended the, the seizure and said, why are you seizing this? And then the comunidad presented their titles and they were like, okay, so it turns out to be yours, right? Uh, and and I think that's, that's something that... Um, illustrates how the state was perceiving that advancing communal interest was also advancing their vision of agrarian industrialism, right? Um, and, and surprisingly, I think the case of Honduras, Honduras supports Ranca, supports other neighboring communities that were mobilizing over Toma de Tierras, but they never quite, quite launched their own Toma de Atoxaico in the 1960s. 
um, what I describe on the um, on, on my book and what it's narrated on the minutes is it's conversations that um, try to be what you I guess you consider much more conservative around the position of like actively mobilizing and seizing a talk cycle and more sort of like no the, the legal avenues have brought us great rewards great economic rewards and great social political rewards why don't we continue to pursue this right why don't we continue to pursue first the legal victory uh, over having the possession of a cycle recognized by the state and then we'll we'll mobilize there right um and um this is the moment that's the conversation inside Honduras when a yet new understanding of agrarian reform emerged in 1969 as this imminent promise of redistributing land radically with the motto of tierra para el que la trabaja, right? A motto that, you know, it's perhaps the most repeated aphorism in Latin American history. Yes. Right? Land for those uh, who work it is every revolution. Every revolution promised that, right? And that was very, very interestingly dissected in the social political intimacy of Honduras. What does it mean? What, whose land? What does it mean to work it? And who's going to receive this land? And so then when 1969 happens, when you have the military government and Velasco and the particular Peruvian land reform, which is um, very particular, it enters into this conversation. Um, and when one of the things you argue is that this the, the actual effects of the agrarian reform, I'm going to quote you here, change the ecological relationship between villager and land, turning materially empowered comunidades that you've described beautifully um, into disenfranchised usufructories of land and agrarian resources. So how did the agrarian reform um, actually impact communities like Honduras and and how is it perceived and experienced? Mm -hmm. I think I, you know, in, in retrospect, if I was much more um, kept, like, um, much more categorative in that affirmation that I, I wish I could have been. Um, and uh, I wanted to present this iconic case of Honduras, right, as, uh, um, as subjects and objects of agrarian reform and their particular version of agrarian reform. To signal one thing that um, I think tends to be neglected, particularly in the public conversation about agrarian reform, the 1969 agrarian reform, and that is that agrarian reform had a very differentiated impact depending on where it was conducted, right? And that where it was conducted had, first and foremost, I think, an environmental aspect to it. Like, what is exactly you know what what is the physical space, the physical domain that that this economic reform is happening upon. Um, some sort of like sociopolitical complications, like who lives here, how they have lived, who has what. And, um, and that presents, I think, a vision of a much more heterogeneous economic reform that we wish to believe or to accept sometimes. I, um, my, my colleague Rohan Chatterjee is, is finishing a fantastic... Um, um, discussion of uh, the agrarian reform map. There was a map of agrarian reform, I think, um, confection in 
73 that presented this sort of like very, very um, atomized heterogeneity of what agrarian reform actually looked like on the land itself. Right? So there were, there were places in which, yes, there was some family redistribution of land. There were places in which, yes, there was some communal redistribution of land. There were places in which cooperativization became the norm, particularly along the northern industrialized haciendas, right? Um, and there were places like the Central Sierra in which something radically different happened, right? A grand reform and its 1969 version departed from a premise that was not true in the case of the Central Sierra. There were landless campesinos claiming land. That, that's not, I mean, that is the case of other spaces and other regions in Peru. That was not the case in the Central Sierra. What the Central Sierra had experienced from 1920s until 1969 is a continuous narrative of land empowerment of comunidades. Right? It's, it's everything that I had described so far in this conversation, like legibility, capitalization, advancement of agrarian industrialism, all of it grounded on the comunidad as a partner of both the state and capital. And, and firmly capable of making these decisions. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and, and not only capable of making these decisions, but also passionately discussing these questions inside the comunidad, right? Dissecting them, presenting very different opinions, some of them framed politically, some of them not so framed politically. Uh, comunidades that, by the way, had a high level of internal differentiation. Like, mm -hmm. comuneros are equivalent, but they're not equal. That sort of sense of material egalitarianism that we often associate with comunidades is not true. There are rich comuneros and there are poor comuneros. And sometimes poor comuneros end up working for rich comuneros. And often they don't like working for rich comuneros. And that leads to some form of resentment that can have huge implications. And yet, the, every comunidad, Honduras and many other, know that despite disagreements and the, despite differences, they need to come up with some form of resolution because at the end of this day, the state expects only one voice emerging from one comunidad. And so that capacity of building consensus is really, really crucial for the comunidad to continue to exist. Um, and so in the case of the Central Sierra, the experience of agrarian reform is this creation of sociedades agrarias de interés social. The big size is like, I think one, one way of describing them uh, using agrarian reform sources themselves is macro cooperative, like giant, giant cooperatives of, of land um, that are particularly efficient when you think that, you know, yes, agrarian business in some parts of Peru means agriculture, but agrarian business in most of Peru means grazing. It means like sheep, it means farming animals, right? It, it's not like that sort of idealized, almost romanticized family-based agriculture that sometimes goes onto textbooks and history manuals. It's something different, right? Past a certain altitude, you cannot grow much. You have to do something else. And that's something else. It's mining in some cases and it's grazing in others. Right, And when you try to conduct the ground reform on grazing lands, it, you face something completely different to what happens inside valleys or in lower agricultural areas. If you parcel agri uh, uh, agricultural land, yes, domestic agriculture 
continues to be feasible. If you parcel grazing land, you make that land completely inefficient. Ungrazable. You ruin it. Yes, you yeah. ruin it. Like it, it, that's not how it works. It has to be collectively owned. It has to be collectively exploited. And actually, it requires vast amounts of land, right? It requires a constant expansion of the land itself because of soil erosion, because of the growth of, of, of flocks and so forth. And so this is something that um, not only Velasco and the military leadership of, of, the, uh, of the state knew very well, but also the bureaucrats who were in charge of actually implementing agrarian reform. And so this size and particularly size Tupac Amaru, the size that will come to govern the life of Hondorinos under agrarian reform, understood very well that for this new moment of agrarian industrialism, grace industrialism, for it to continue to thrive, they needed to retain, and in fact, they needed to remake an hacienda-like form of governance of all these lands. So far from empowering disenfranchised now campesinos, right? No longer indigenous, but now campesinos, far from enfranchising them, what the government will come to ask them is you have to give up on your property, you have to give up on your flocks. Everything now belongs to the state control size, and we'll just give you a percentage of the revenue produced at the end of the year. And Hondorinos go like, what? What what happened here? The, the promise was for us to get out of Saikon. That's what we thought we were going to get delivered. And now what you're delivering is we no longer own a Toxico, we no, own, no longer own our flocks, and now we need to work for someone else, like sheep herding their flocks, and we'll just get a salary at the end of the year. This looks like something we know. It looks like an hacienda. It looks like a patron. And inside the communal minutes, it'll be interested that this term will emerge. El Estado Patron, the patron state, right? So a grand reform on the land in practice in the Central Sierra came to reconstitute some hacienda-like dynamics that proved to be enormously disenfranchising for the campesinos of Honduras and other neighboring comunidades of the Central Sierra. Because what, what gets created is absolutely the opposite of community autonomy exactly the opposite it's like every single like so going back to the definition of of autonomy that i provided at the beginning of this conversation right so this capacity of deciding what happens tomorrow for the current generation the subsequent generation now is no longer on the hands of the community itself now it's in the hands of the size which means that it's in the hands of the state which means it's in the hands of an external agent that may or may not have the best interests of the community in, in in mind Right? And often, as I documented, it did not. And and historically speaking, the memory of the community is not going to assume the best intentions on the part of this external exactly. agent. Exactly, exactly. And and I think it's interesting how Honduras perceived this aggravating, disenfranchising moment as, okay, now, now is the time to mobilize. Now is the time to seize a toxic, right? Because what they are actually perceiving is that this compact between the state and the comunidad is melting. It's melting down. Right? It's falling apart. And the legal culture that they had pursued up to that point 
and that had harnessed all these like rewards and perks and you know degrees of legibility and autonomy that they had enjoyed for at least four decades up to that point is is going away and when that gradually goes away the decision of seizing Atoxico and mobilizing over these lands finally emerges as the only solution for them to secure some some form of very basic autonomy. So now we are hurtling, I think, full force towards the internal armed conflict, right? Where um, this is a story of um, how... The, the Central Sierra has its own dynamics that are not the same dynamics quite as Ayacucho. They're not the same dynamics as other parts of Peru. Um, but this is also a time in which um, Peru is experiencing different kinds of mobilizations and different kinds of violence um, that then turn into what we now what we now see as um, the IAC as as this war as as the Sendero Luminoso being the most visible violent explosion of that. So what happens next with, with Honduras, with, with Atoxaico? Um, yes. Yes. That's, that's a, that's a great one. Um, I think the, the first thing I would like to say about that, Elena, is that, um, I, you know, historians of our generation and the preceding generation too are like completely obsessed completely obsessed with the idea of finding the ultimate equation that explains this correlation between a ground reform and the internal armed conflict, right? So be, because they happen one after the other, in our mind, it's like, well, they have to be connected, right? And there has to be a, a relationship of causality. And then we, we fall into this, I mean, to me, slightly, I mean, certainly frustrating, but also kind of like... Um, not really useful quest for finding the mechanics of the relationship between agrarian reform and internal armed conflict. I mean, some of these exercises have harnessed beautiful results, like um, um, Miguel Lazarna's study of of two Ayacucho communities, right, and how uh, Waichao and Waiyai, and how the the differentiated impact of agrarian reform of each of these communities ends up explaining different outcomes when 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 political violence um uh strikes um but um you know i i think we need to transcend that sort of like you know w- what is what is the mechanics of this you know i mean yes they happened you know sequentially but that sequence that sequence doesn't necessarily mean correlation even uh, and let alone let alone causality now what i do claim on the book is that um uh, first, the Central Sierra is the second epicenter of the internal armed conflict. So even by Truth and Reconciliation Commission numbers, by the final report numbers, the place with most casualties is Ayacucho, of course. And I think the second place with the most casualties is the Central Sierra. Right? It, you know, just like Ayacucho has the Universidad Nacional San Cristóbal de Huamanga as the sort of like cradle of Sendero Luminoso, the cradle of Sendero Luminoso in the Central Sierra was the Universidad Nacional del Centro. Right? And like they almost have sort of some sort of like interesting analogous trajectories, the Central Sierra and Ayacucho, that for some reason, you know. People just focus on Ayacucho. I mean, not for some reason, for all the justified reasons. People focus on Ayacucho, but like left the Central Sierra 
behind. So I, I would contend, you know, uh, that the central sierra is just as important for explaining um, um, and understanding um, the civil war uh, as Ayacucho probably is. Um, and um, Sendero Luminoso made their way to the central sierra, and you know, uh, Nelson Manrique um, has has written perhaps the most important books, not just on this moment, but on the Central Sierra at large. No one who studies the Central Sierra cannot refer to Nelson and, and Florencia Malon too, of course. Um, and um, he, in the case of Nelson, he described this um, war for the Central Sierra as this like complete, absolute carnage battle between empowered comunidades and the incursion of Sendero Luminoso. Um, in many ways, similar to what happens in Puno, described by um, José Luis Renique, right? Uh, another battle that, that Sendero unleashed there unsuccessfully, unsuccessfully seizing Puno, unsuccessfully seizing the Central Sierra. But the fact that, you know, the, the Central Sierra never became what Sendero Luminoso ambition doesn't mean that political violence did not came come to reframe how comuneros and campesinos understood their own lives and understood their existence and understood what was going to happen with the comunidad in years to come right um i think um, one of the interesting um aspects of my research that i didn't quite include um in, in any part of the book but I'm, I'm very happy to share now is that when I, in one of my stays in in in, in Honduras, you know, we talk about Sendero, we talk about, you know, whether they had been there, and there was a denial, a complete denial of any sort of like Senderista affiliation or presence, right? But you know, you go to the minutes, and they, they, there they were, right? Uh, initially as. Um, the Movimiento de Campesinos Pobres, the MCP, which was one of the nicknames that Sendero had outside Ayacucho. And later on, as just Sendero Luminoso, like they mentioned them. Uh, but they also mention, and there's, there are continuous mentions of fear and, and violence plaguing the countryside, sometimes outside the borders of the, of the comunidad, but sometimes inside the comunidad, including some really grim episodes like the assassination of Honorio Pomachawa that I um, uh, described on the, last, on the last chapter. And so I think political violence not necessarily expressed as the like party presence of Sendero Luminoso, the military presence of Sendero Luminoso, or the military presence of the state, but rather as this atmosphere of fear and the idea and the feeling that comuneros had that life as a community may be coming to an end, right? Our capacity to like continue to live the way we have lived for decades, for centuries, if you embrace the ancestrality of the comunidad, may be coming to an end. And maybe coming to an end because people are leaving town. No, no one wants to live here, right? They're going to Lima. They're going to mining towns, right? We fail in seizing Atok cycle, right? The state continues to be here, present. We, you know, it. They massacre us in in seventy nine. They can come back and massacre us again. There are political divisionism inside the comunidad, right? So their 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 internal material difference are now politically framed. And there there are comuneros that have become passionate apristas. There are comuneros that have become 
passionate action populistas. There are comuneros that have become, you know, passionate izquierdistas too, right? And this sort of like atmosphere of heavy partisan politicization is eroding the social tissue of the comunidad. And so at some point, political violence for Honduras, and I would argue for the rest of the Central Sierra, while it's not expressed in like active military incursions of Sendero or the, or the state, it is expressed as this sort of like final realization that we need to decide how do we want to live in the future because community, comunidad is no longer feasible. We cannot reach consensus. We cannot, we cannot secure autonomy. We cannot secure even the territoriality that we possess. Maybe it's time to disband. Maybe it's time to parcel. Maybe it's time to fragment the comunidad. It's time to just like grant land to each individual family and, you know, everyone on their own from now on. And I think, you know, we need to come to terms with this like yet like second tier narrative of, of comunidad, right? Not, not just as, you know, these killings and massacres and massive murders and like atrocities and, you know, very, very well-researched and well-studied narrative of uh, human rights violations during the civil war, but also as a moment in which a good deal of Peruvian population confronted the question of their livelihoods coming to an end. Not because their lives were coming to an end, but the way they lived, the way, the way they dwelt, the way they existed was coming to an end. And that is the that is the narrative that I provide on my book, I believe. So this 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 violence of potential communal annihilation, social annihilation outside of the question of um, life and death, but how you live your life on some level. So I want to ask, because you end your book with with this reflection um, that I really, really thought was very important for scholars to, to think about, about how, um, and you've, you've brought this up before in our conversation, that the there's this presentist narrative of the abandoned countryside, of the absence of the state from the countryside. And something that I think I've seen in my own research is that the state's perpetual idea that the countryside is an unexploited resource, and that we're going to, for the first time, reach out to the indigenous communities or the rural areas or the comunidades, is also part of this perpetual forgetting of all of that other intervention that has happened before. But so one of the things that you argue is that this that the nature of the violence and the um, extraordinary nature of the violence in in the rural areas and the and the dispossession of communities and the demographic moves was part and parcel of this most recent uh, wave of forgetting that has happened, enabled in many ways. Um, a removal of the state from the countryside, and also this this idea that the the countryside is this other place that is so far from our understanding. So, how does that? Um, what what does your book do to sort of trouble that to complicate that? And then the second part of this question, which we can we can get to, is how is that? How does that help us understand now? Right, because now we are in a this other, another moment of ongoing and growing violence that is disproportionately affecting the countryside. Um, so, so yes. Yeah, that's well. This is profound. Um, I think um, I think the ultimate outcome of um, 
there is a cycle. There is a cycle that um, you know. I think this 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 will contradict what I said a minute ago about agrarian reform and the internal armed conflict and their sequentiality because I'm, now I'm going to portray it as a cycle, right? There is a cycle that I think inaugurates with not agrarian reform per se, but the failure of agrarian reform, right? So when it fails, when it gets financially entangled and, you know, the state realizes that, oh my God, what have we done? Like, you know, like reinvestment cannot happen by comunidades or cooperative and the state cannot afford to do like the capital reinvestments that this agrarian experiment requires. So, uh, all right. That's it. Bye, right? And and then there is like abrupt contraction, right? And and then we see political violence engulfing the countryside, and um, and in many ways, you know what um, what the state had done through agrarian reform and cooperatives and size in terms of expansion during agrarian reform comes back again during the civil war in the form of militarization, right? So, you know, there is, you can almost like say there is a longer chronological arc of militarization of the countryside since 1969, first in the form of agrarian reform, then in the form of counter subversion and state terrorism, right? Uh, And I think just like that agrarian reform and its failure follows or gets followed by an, an abrupt contraction like the state says okay let's let's pull off let's pull out um in the case of the internal armed conflict the civil war and its aftermath the state also like abruptly pulls out right and says all right right we did enough the yeah we're done you know what happened happened um and what changes the game in, t- in terms of this like pull out of the state is um i think the neoliberal framing that 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 um the 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 second pull out gets to experience right so that neoliberal framing uh, you know basically you know even by 74 75 you know when when the grand reform fails and then there is a transition from Velasco to Morales Bermudez and then there is an entire narrative of counter agrarian reform that emerges there is still in the late 1970s in Peru the perception that state involvement is okay like the state has to be involved the state is the main agent of the promotion of so many things, right? Like education, literacy, um, infrastructural development, but capitalism, right? And and, uh, that framework vanishes in the early 80s as the the conflict is unfolding. And by the end of the conflict, you know, it found, the end of the conflict found the state and its communities, and I'm, I'm saying very purposely its communities because they're, they're its communities, being framed by this different um, understanding of what in state involvement is. And this very, very adamant sanction that state cannot get involved anymore, right? It It's all about market. It's all about, the you know, the, neoliberalization of everything economies practices affect right and um there is no avenue that provides the state any possibility for 
re-intervening or being present again in the countryside for facilitating nothing. This is, you know, we're, we're done forever, right? Um, now, what I argue in the, in the epilogue of the book is that that contraction is not just a negligence. It's, it's a purposeful contraction. It's a purposeful contraction of, I think what I, I, I think I, I kept the, the, the use of this concept of this politics of abandonment, right? Like abandoning for the sake of initiating a new sequence of preparedness for a new age of capitalist interventions, right? So this abandonment of the countryside um, facilitated a reclaim of, of this space and their populations and their dynamics and their identities by capital, initially domestic, and then gradually foreign capital. Kind of like reinitiating the cycle that had happened back at the end of the War of the Pacific during the reconstruction of the country, right? Into the early decades of the 20th century. When you look at the manuals of, say, Prom Peru, this is this is a state agency that depends from the Ministry of Tourism that um, is destined to promote um, investment, whether domestic or foreign investment. You, you look at the manuals, the brochures of Prom Peru, and you look at, say, uh, the Guía para Capitalistas y um, Migrantes, published by the uh, Ministry of Fomento in 1901. The similarities are so striking. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And it's, it's, I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm not a believer that history repeats itself. I sort of dislike that take usually, but mm-hmm. it does rhyme, right? As someone has said, it, right. history the, does. The repetition it, does. Yes, yeah, history does echoes. rhyme. And, and it does rhyme with the fact that, you know, this capitalist refashioning of the countryside as a landscape and as a venue for capitalist investment, both of them happen at the end of conflagrations, right? Both of them, both of these conflagrations having indigenous and campesino populations at the very center of these conflagrations. And both of them, I think, resulting ultimately into what I think is going to be the epiphany at the end of this new age of violence that we're experiencing right now, that is you know, actually, we cannot do this without them. We we just can't. <laughs> um, yes, you know, the, the state will massacre them, and you know, will continue to enhance the illegitimacy of 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 its of its um of its of its power in in the next few weeks. But I think sooner than later there'll be some form of awakening. Then the case of uh, the early twentieth century happened. First through private foreign eyes, right? It was first like private foreign entrepreneurs who said, hey, we need them, right? They are our labor. We need to protect them, right? Maybe maybe it will rhyme again. Maybe the history will rhyme again. But I think sooner or later, there will be this epiphany of no form of governance um, in the countryside, no form of governance of the Sierra, no form of governance of the Andes, of the Peruvian Andes, can happen without resorting on the most important institutions in the history of the Republic, of the country, of the nation, comunidades, at the very center of everything that the, that, that any power that has claimed state status has done or tried to do for the last 600 years. I like that. 
<laughs> I, I'm I'm interested in in the way that this rhyme might uh, might play out for us in the next few years because, um, yeah, I I think I, I find that very compelling that this is I mean the 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 comunidades were not destroyed right this is there was this open question um, in during the violence of the of the late twentieth century of of sort of potential annihilation but it it was not the apocalypse. No, they're, they're not destroyed. They won't be destroyed. They're not poor, right? Like some of these bafflement of the mobilization of Puno of comunidades from Puno was like, who's funding them? It's like they don't need funding. They're economically dynamic. They can fund themselves. Trust me, they can fund themselves. Like this vision of like the impoverished campesino, campesina, it's just, it, it just inhabits the imaginary of, of limeños and limeñas, right? And then you say, well, if they're not impoverished, why, why are they mobilizing? Because they want social and political enfranchisement, which is not the same. It's not the same as material enfranchisement. They want the next level. They want exactly what you have, right? You have material enfranchisement, but you also have social and political enfranchisement, right? They want equity. They want equality, right? And they have the means to con to, to, to claim that. Um, you know, I don't want to... Like, Trust me, I'm, I'm not aligning any with, way with Hernando de Soto, but it was so weird to see Hernando de Soto in the uh, Abraham Lincoln Memorial, like speaking about the sort of like the history of Puno, its importance to the country. And um, I think he also made the claim that, uh, um, that um, emancipation had facilitated... Um, what did he say? He facilitated that he facilitated the enfranchisement of entrepreneurs in the in in the country in the history of the so, something like that, some sort of like capitalist state like that. But to me, what resonated was like, yeah, this guy is doing exactly what these like foreign entrepreneurs did in the early twentieth century, saying, "Hold on, like hold your violence. We cannot do it without them. We cannot do it without Puno, right? We cannot." <clears throat> We need the workers, we need the laborers, we need the resources, we need someone who works there. We need an alliance, we need to like rewrite a pact. Maybe sometimes some um, some bit of wishful thinking, maybe it's like a necessary message of hope, but you know, no power that works solely on coercion and repression will, will last long enough. And and you know, if if Dina Boluarte continue to unleash what she's unleashing, she'll fall. Yeah, right. And yeah, it's it's true at the level of the countryside. It's it's true at the level of the state too. Peru does not exist without. Absolutely, and I think at some point, Peru will go away. The state will go away. Comunidades will stay in place. Yeah. That I guarantee you. Well, that is a fabulous um, way to transition to the just the final question, which is: um, I know you've given us so much to talk about, but what is what is next for you? Yeah, well, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, Great, I, right? I, I don't know. I'm, I've been exploring the last couple of years, as I also was finishing this book with um, some very early research on El Nino, the oceanic oscillation, and um, the drought conditions that El Nino events, particularly powerful Nino events, uh, can generate in the south central Peruvian Andes. Um, turns out that I. You know, when, when I have done very, very preliminary field work in Ayacucho and Puno, my understanding of drought was completely, completely incomplete, if that makes any sense. Uh, right. And, and to me, drought just meant crisis and, you know, just finding these campesinos 
with a very deep knowledge and understanding of drought and the resilience that they need for facing and confronting drought and sometimes even like quote unquote harvesting drought conditions it was just like boom right like i my, my my brain exploded and clearly there is so much i need to know about um um campesino environmental knowledges traditional environmental knowledges that will be a crucial component of my next research project but what i'm looking at right now is um you know some sort of intersection between climate dynamics um, environmental disturbances, campesino and indigenous livelihoods, and to what extent contemporary forms of livelihood from comunidades, perhaps even other forms of dwelling, perhaps even cities, are not the survivors of disasters, but are the byproduct of them, right? So to what extent what we call contemporary disasters actually made us, right? And, uh, you know, there is a reason why people continue to dwell and redwell and resettle places that have been completely ravaged by avalanches and white coast before, because they are the most, um, you know, fertile soils, right? There is a reason why we just accept as a given the fact that seasonally floods will kill an X number of people because they will also irrigate massive amounts of lands that are completely unable to be irrigated otherwise, right? And so, you know, I have titled this new project, tentative project, Children of Collapse, uh, right? So, so, you know, to what extent we are as a society and, you know, um, I am saying we, but, um, you know, contemporary Andean societies are the... Um, uh, the product or the byproduct of of disasters that make them. That sounds like an excellent project. I can't wait to read that book as well. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Javier. Um, I I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you for um, the time, and I hope your audience finds this um, legible. <laughs>